0: Tonight we're in uh, number four in our series on God's prevailing work through the centuries, and so we're following along as uh, the Lord develops uh, the uh, history of His churches. So Jude chapter one. Jude only has one. So uh, Jude (laughs) verse three. All right, and so um, uh, just before the book of the Revelation, verse three, and. um, Jude is the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll verse 1 there. The brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. This is Brother James, the pastor there at the Church of Jerusalem. And uh, preserved in Jesus Christ and called, Mercy unto you and peace, love be multiplied. There, uh, there's, a, there's a comma there, see? Love uh, and then he says, "Be multiplied." He's talking to the church there, and he says, "I'm praying that you're going to be multiplied, that you're going to continue to grow." Uh, and so, um, in verse three, now he says, "Beloved, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, but it was needful for me to write unto uh, you and to uh, exhort you that you be not uh, that you should be earnest that you should uh, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints." So. Earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints is the uh, is the thing we're we're working on, and so we see that even in the time of, and we've seen it for the last three uh, weeks that we've been in this little uh, series, we've seen how that the devil went right to work to um, make trouble in the churches, to cause uh, difficulty, to uh, bring persecutions from without, to bring divisions from within, to uh, try to um, to try to inject doctrinal heresies. It's been from the get-go that that's been so. The church uh, has never experienced a long season of, uh, you know, prospering and benefits without any opposition from the world. It's never been that way. And Jesus had promised the disciples that it would not be that way. He said, if you're Getting along fine with the world, something's not right. So so uh, certainly these kind of things that we're talking about tonight with our conflict with the world's idea of sexuality and that, um, that's, that's as it's been and as it will be until Jesus returns again. We're never going to get to a place where the world's getting along and we're getting along fine and everybody's happy and, you know, hunky-dory. Uh, no, it's not going to be the way it is. And so we've got to, in the, in the call that we have, earnestly contend for the faith. So as we leave the first century, we've been there for the last three weeks. We, we leave the first century, we see uh, the passing of uh, John the Apostle. He's the last one that uh, dies. He's only one of the 12 that died of natural causes. He lived uh, into a ripe old age, uh, maybe close to 100 uh, and he died around around the end of the first century, around A.D. somewhere there. And the, um, God, the book of the Revelation was written at, at the end, at the closing days, closing months, closing years of his life anyway. The book of the Revelation was uh, written. And that uh, last book of the Bible and that last apostle who died uh, is, uh, is the mark of the finish of the word of God. The Bible took 1600 years to be written. I mean, the period of time from the first uh, books of Moses till the book of the Revelation is about 1600 years. About 40 human authors were involved in that. And so uh, here's the last of it. Now, the New Testament, of course, is a span much shorter of that 1600, much shorter portion of that 1600 years than the Old Testament. But uh, here it is completed now, the book of uh, the Revelation. John passes off the scene and it's now into the second century and we don't have any more apostles to look to. We don't have the Apostle Paul to help us to have a right understanding of doctrine. We can't turn to Peter anymore. We have none of the other apostles that were with Jesus uh, Uh, with us anymore and so we've got uh none of that left no apostolic authority was passed on there wasn't a second generation of apostolic authority and the apostles uh time was temporary and so you have the prophets you don't have the you know revelation by prophets anymore you don't have revelation by dreams and visions and so forth anymore you don't have the apostles anymore. The signs, the wonders, the things uh, you know, uh, healings and so forth, like that, going on. All the apostolic signs have diminished down to the last apostle, and he's gone now. And so, what do we have left? Well, we have the written uh, truths that these apostles recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is what we have left. We we have that choice now as men in the second century. We're at that point where uh, we have their writings left. And it's uh, remarkable that as we study the, uh, the, uh, the development of the Word of God, we realize something uh, amazing, and that is that the, there was widespread agreement among the very early churches about what was Scripture. As a matter of fact, even before Paul uh, died, his writings were recognized as Scripture. Peter uh, uh, makes reference to some of what Paul wrote. He said some of what Paul writes is really hard to understand, and he uses the term Scripture in referring to Paul's writings. So Paul's uh, letters that were circulated among the churches were very early on uh, compiled together and um, were referenced by the churches as the Word of God. So that was early on, The, the Gospels were well uh, accepted early into the second century and so by um, by ad about ad 150 the the canon of scripture is settled it's uh of course there's going to be you know those that detractors that uh, argue for other books that uh, were you know written contemporaneous to the scriptures to be included but the but the churches did not um, widely accept uh, these other books that uh, you think of uh, you know the uh, Epistle of Barnabas and such like that and uh, you know uh, these different uh, extra biblical accounts. A lot of things that were written were you know they had a good deal of historical basis to them and and there were other um, Christian uh, contemporaries of. Um, The apostles that did write to churches and so on and much of what they said was was true and was accurate and was in agreement with the uh with the rest of scripture but they weren't included in the uh, canon of scripture for various reasons and so um so you have by ad 150 that's you know a very brief time that's a basically a little over 100 years after the resurrection of christ that we have a settled uh we have a settled agreement on what is the word of God. And that's a that's a great thing. You have a man put in this quandary of of what uh, you know what you're going to are you going to follow now are you going to follow a man or are you going to put uh, are you going to put authority in a man or are you going to put authority in the scriptures in the word of God. So it was a decision that had to be make, made and it was a time that the gospel faced its greatest test. Uh, you know, would um, would be the would be that first uh, that second century would be that time uh, when the gospel would face face its greatest uh, challenge, its greatest test uh, that, um, uh, that since uh, you know since the uh, apostles died. And so um, you have in the scriptures a remarkable testimony as far as the abundance of manuscripts is concerned as well. Uh, because early on it was uh, seen the importance of copying and disseminating the Word of God was was early on seen, and so as a result of that, the presence of manuscripts, which is handwritten copies or portions or pieces of the Word of God, books or the whole the whole new testament um, the manuscript evidence for the Bible is so much more, so far beyond anything else of antiquity that uh, there's really no comparison uh, at all. Uh, there's such affirmation of, uh, of the um, veracity of the Scripture and the preservation of the Scripture. And that's a whole other study, but uh, that's what's going on now. That's really what's happening. That's the challenge that's coming. That's what the devil's going to attack uh, in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. He's going to work on that angle. He's got the persecution going. And that has kind of backfired on him. The more he persecutes, the wider the flame spreads. And that's, that's not good for the devil's work. And so he's altered his, his um, you know, philosophy. He's opened a different bag of tools. And now he's working on perverting the gospel. He's working on adding to it or taking away from it. He's working on uh, bringing in false teachers. He's working on those kinds of angles as we see the, the word of God being carried on through the first, second, third, I mean through the second and third centuries. Um, we we have uh, uh, we have widespread persecution against the church, but we also have widespread expansion of Christianity and widespread expansion of Christian leaders writing about uh, writing to churches, writing to one another, quoting from Scripture, and so forth. Now, you know, you recognize that if every Bible in the world were burned and taken away, we could still immediately reconstruct the entire Bible, every word of it, from from what's been written about it, from all that's been written about it, every every verse of scripture in the Bible has been copied and recopied and quoted and requoted and translated and retranslated and so it's uh, it's not an issue you know if every Bible was gone, we can still we still have the Bible we still have the Word of God, we can still re- reconstruct it uh, today, but of course uh, the Bible is the number one bestseller of all time and will be for until Jesus comes again uh, It's so far ahead of all the rest that they don't even they don't talk about it on the top 10 list because it's always number one always number one you know bestseller a, a book of any book anytime anywhere any day uh, any place so so uh, there's no need of them even uh, when you look at the new york time, time bestseller list and they have the number one book on there it's not number one it's uh, number something down the road but uh, the bible is always number one and uh, so uh, christian writing was uh, was taken off you know and and in the first and second century, they weren't, they weren't really writing Christian love stories and Christian novels, you know, and it wasn't Christian westerns and such like that, you know. It wasn't really Christian entertainment writing. It was, you know, how are we going to stay alive with the persecution today and where are we going to hide today and how are we going to get the word out there without getting our head cut off, and, and that was the thing, Christian writing. Uh, notably, there was, uh, you know, as you, as you examine the, the writings of, what they call them the early church fathers, and they're—they're they're not using that term like the Roman Catholic Church does. But they're talking about that—that that was a—that was a once commonly used term for leaders in the um, in, in church history that had some name and some recognition because of their leadership. So we would call them—we um, would call them church leaders today, but they were referred to in the in writing as the church fathers. But as you examine the writing of these church leaders of those first three centuries, you see no mention at all in any of their writing of this uh, idea of covenant theology. That is, that uh, God's Old Testament covenant was somehow a. Adapted and adopted to the New Testament church, and and that the Old Testament covenant is still in effect, but it's the New Testament church now. That covenant uh, theology is not uh, mentioned in the first three centuries in anything anybody wrote uh, that is still existing. So the error began with the Roman Catholic Church in the uh, fourth century when the Roman Catholic Church began to develop its theology, contrary to uh, the biblical churches. Uh, the idea of this adoption of the covenant that belonged to Israel, to the churches, and the abandonment of Israel, um, that idea was uh, perpetrated by the Roman Catholic, the universal church. So covenant theology is, uh, you know, takes off from that point, from the fourth century, on, and it's principally in the Roman Catholic Church. It's never It's never something that the baptist churches or those uh, of our heritage accepted at all Um, they recognized the two covenants the old new the old testament the new testament as distinct they saw the differences between them they recognized uh, uh, the authority of the new testament as far as a covenant relationship with christ and so that uh, old testament uh, covenant theology that is uh, present in the roman catholic church is going to be carried on by the protestants in the 15th century it's going to be really revived by the protestants and not revived because it was always in the roman catholic church but it was it's going to be adopted by the protestants as part of their theological position too so calvinism is is covenant theology it's the idea that the old testament covenant is carried on in the new testament that that um the church it replaces israel uh and it's a replacement theology church has replaced israel God's done with israel and um, the church is it now. So that's uh, that's covenant theology in a nutshell. There's a lot more to it than that, but uh, uh, we're not uh, we're not going to go into great detail there. We're just going to uh, we're going to verify the position historically of the churches that we're holding to the Bible. Look at your Bible now to Galatians chapter three, and the Galatians is a book that Paul wrote in response to kind of the idea of covenant theology, uh, if you will. It was, it was pushed uh, by the Judaizers as important for the churches to adopt the uh, Old Testament covenant practices. And, and so um, Paul had to write in the book of Galatians to right a wrong that existed in some of the Galatian churches that had gotten these Judaizers into them and hadn't, didn't recognize the difference between the Old Covenant and the New, the Old Testament and the New. So uh, he develops that and, and does a masterful job through it by the, by the uh, guidance of the Holy Spirit to correct that grievous error. Uh, look at a couple examples in Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. As is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So the redemption from the curse of the law. And, of course, he's referred to the Old Testament covenant law that Israel was under bondage to. Um, you see in chapter 3, verse 21, chapter 3 Galatians, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? So we're talking about covenant. We're talking about a covenant relationship, the law. And then we're talking about promises of God. The law Is the law against the promises of God? God forbid. If there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. After that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. And so the distinction made between the Old Testament law, the schoolmaster that's pointing us to Christ, and then coming out of the bondage of the law because of what Jesus did, how He fulfilled the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He said He came to fulfill the law. So he abolished the curse of the law by taking the curse upon himself and then gave us as New Testament Christians the opportunity to be, uh, to be blessed under that promise that was given to Abraham, he said. Now Abraham was around before the law was around and the promise was given to Abraham and it was, it was faith, trusting in God's word, trusting in God's finished work, trusting that God would provide himself a lamb. That's the promise that, god gave to abraham and that we uh enjoy now we enjoy the promise because the work of uh, the law the curse of the law has been taken on by christ so he makes that very clear delineation there and tries to help the galatian churches get out from under that concept that they were saved by jesus by trusting in jesus christ but also they had to go and make sure they were circumcised and do this and do that, and keep the holy days and this and th- that one, and you know, uh, keep the feasts and all those kinds of things that were, uh, that were part and parcel of the law. They got delivered from that. Look at chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. But, but now, after that, ye have known God, or rather are known of God, and that's really what's more important to be known of God. You know, we know God because we've trusted Him as our Savior, but when we trust Him as a Savior, if we're truly born again, God knows you. Uh, he's not going to say to you, depart from me, you cursed and everlasting fire. I never knew you because he knows you as a child of God. So now after we've been known, uh, we have known God or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? Why are you going back under the observance of days and months and times and years? I'm afraid of you, lest I've been upon you labor in vain. And so he's. Uh, he's correcting this error that they had fallen into in that way and and he explains to them there's two covenants Uh, verse 24 chapter 4 verse 24 which things he's talking about uh, Sarah and Hagar the free woman and the bond woman uh, the woman the child of promise and the child uh, of uh, the uh, slave and he says which things are an allegory for these are the two covenants these two women and their children, uh, this, these two stories, these two lines are two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage. That one's Agar, Hagar, as we see here in the Old Testament. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is. It's, she corresponds to the way Jerusalem is now, he says, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem which is from above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that prevailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. And so uh, uh, we're in verse uh, 31, he said, uh, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So the line is the New Covenant line, not the Old uh, Covenant, uh, the Old Testament. So, That errant theology was picked up by Calvin and the other reformers, Ulrich Zwingli and others, um, John Knox. These were all Protestants. These were all products of Romanism that came out of the Roman Catholic Church. They were not Baptists. They didn't even like the Baptist people, um, but they were Protestants. They really wanted, the reformers are proud to tell you, even today, the reformers are proud to tell you that they that their desire was to reform the Roman Catholic Church and make it more scriptural. Well, they came closer to Scripture by coming out of it than they would have otherwise, but they certainly didn't come to where they needed to. So, so uh, there's still lots of work to be done in Protestantism and, and uh, lots of light to be, to be shed on that. But their, uh, their theology was covenant theology, and that's what they still, by and large, uh, hold to. So, so uh, they taught that. God laid aside Israel, picked up the church. Israel's done. The church is it. And uh, he, uh, they teach that circumcision is not, it's not the symbol now. It's baptism. Uh, and uh, Calvin taught this. He taught, he taught that water baptism engrafted a person into Christ, that it was water baptism, and it, that it must happen at infancy or the soonest, as soon as possible. If it didn't happen in infancy, it had to happen as soon as possible because the waters of baptism were going to be what engrafts you into, uh, into Christ. So um, uh, that's what Calvin taught, and that's what the Reformers taught, and that's what these Protestant churches by and large still hold to today. I understand you recognize that they don't all. I mean, a lot of Protestant churches have uh, understood, you know, that baptism by immersion and, and do that, but they... Uh, I don't know of any that hold, uh, you know, baptism as important as it should be uh, held, and um, and so we have, um, but we still have that error still present with it today. So uh, let's take a let's contrast the Catholic Reformed Protestant theology with uh, with historic Baptists uh, and and our heritage theology. I'll just give you some comparisons here. Uh, first of all, in the in the Catholic Protestant uh Reformed theology, you have the Old Testament covenant with Israel transferred to the church. And in Baptist theology, you have Jesus fulfilling the law, as we've talked about, and the covenant with Israel is going to be completed in the future. God's going to pick up Israel again. He's not done with Israel. He's going to take her back up again, and He's going to uh, fulfill all that He promised to Israel. In the future, yet that's not true in covenant theology. That's not the position that the covenant theologian takes. Number two, the sign for the Old Testament uh, covenant was circumcision, and the sign for the New Testament co- covenant was water baptism. In the Catholic-Protestant point of view, uh, in the Baptist position, in the historic uh, biblical church position, the New Testament is a new covenant of the heart, and not external of ex- of uh, circumcision or of external baptism the covenant is one of the heart and we'll get to that when we in our sunday night series when we get to hebrews 8 9 and 10 and see that, that that difference in that covenant now number three the catholic protestant position concerning infant baptism is that infant baptism regenerates the spirit and places you into the universal church so that's what happens in you know sort Protestantism, catholicism um, Of course, in the Baptist position, in the biblical uh, point of view, theologically, baptism is just symbolic, and and it's got to be by immersion because of the symbol of death, burial, and resurrection, and it's for believers only, and it adds you to the local assembly of uh, of believers, not to some universal church. (laughs) So, big difference there. Number four, the church state uh, theocracy is the ideal in Protestantism and Catholicism. There have been Protestant church, uh, state churches. There have been Catholic state churches. And they're always intermingled with the politics. And they're always intermingled with temporal power. Uh, they are involved that way. So that's Protestantism. That's Catholicism. The ideal, though it, doesn't, it isn't uh, worked out today because of the American, um, you know, the American ideal, is uh, freedom of religion. It's a distinction we have as Americans that, is, uh, that sets us apart. Uh, but but uh, in the theology, the idea is, the, the desire is, in covenant theology, that the church rules. And so where do you see that? You see it where uh, Catholicism is very dominant, has very great power politically in uh, countries where Catholicism is the dominant force. Where Protestantism became the dominant force, you're going to read historically that they did the same thing, you know, Um it, you read of uh, Calvin's, uh, you know, tr- philosophy of church and state, and he, uh, for a time, had a great deal of political power and exercised it as well. Uh, it did not he? Did not practice religious freedom? He did not believe that uh, you know, a man has that uh, conscience before God and and has that uh, that individual soul liberty. He did not believe that. <laughs> so, uh, so Protestantism takes that position as did uh, the the, the uh, Uh, as did the catholic church Uh, the baptist position is that churches are independent one of another they're not a corporate entity that builds power by bonding together and taking over government Uh, that is not the position of uh, independent baptists they have always held the the position of separate uh, church and state separation that the church uh, no state ought to have a state church. No state ought to dictate to the church what to do, what not to. And the church does not uh, dictate the government, does not take over the government and run the country politically. The church is not a political entity. Although every Christian has a personal responsibility as a citizen to be involved in the uh, in the law of the land and in the work of trying to, to make a difference in his country, we're we're none of us thinking, boy, if we could just get enough Baptist churches together, we could take over, we could put the we could be the president, the vice president, the Congress, the House of Representatives, and I think it'd be great if we did that. But you know, we tried that with a couple of so-called Baptists, and they didn't work out so good, did they? So uh uh yeah, that's that's never been the, the position historically of Baptists. They've always held the position of the separation of church and state. The Danbury Baptist Association was the single group that was most responsible for you and I having uh, in America this freedom of religion that we enjoy uh, to some degree even today, but we have in our past enjoyed uh, very much. So the church, uh, uh, the idea in Protestantism and in, uh, in, in Catholicism is that the church state eventually overcomes the world and ushers in uh, the, the, this uh, uh, state of uh, idyllic, Christian world and that's the idea how's that working out for you <laughs> Protestant and Catholic how's that working out for you not so good there's two views that they have on that there's the one view that the church is Christ's body here and so there's no literal return of Christ to the earth because the church just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until it takes over the world so that's not working out so good uh for them and then th- there that group is called all millennialists in their the- theological theological position and then there's the second uh category the second view of those church-state folks that say the church-state first conquers and converts the world all to Christ, and then Jesus returns uh, after that, after that, the church does such a good job that everybody in the world is saved. And uh, that's called post-millennialism. That's not working out so good either. Um, what Baptists have always preached and always taught and always believe is that the world will continue to grow worse uh until the point where jesus returns and christians are raptured out and then the tribulation begins on earth they it's clear in the scripture jesus said it himself when he re- comes again well i find faith on the earth and uh you know he's he's uh, uh he's talking about uh, a world that's in bad shape it's like like it's going to be when uh, things were just before Noah uh, and the flood. And so um, we take that position. We take Daniel's 70th week literally. We believe that that 70th week of years is going to occur and it's going to be called uh, the tribulation. Uh, Jesus returns to earth. He conquers the opposition. And then he establishes his kingdom and his thousand-year reign on earth uh, be- before the eventual eternal state. So, uh, you know, looking at those two sets of theological, theological positions, Which one rings more true? That's pretty obvious which one is uh, more historically accurate and is more biblically accurate there. Thomas Armitage was a great uh, historian. He estimates that in the opening of the second century, there were probably two to three hundred churches that were widely scattered, but they were established. And um, he uh, recognized that, you know, when John's died, the apostolic authority died as well. And so now the churches had the opportunity to step up and just accept the scriptures and begin to preach the scripture and live by the scripture. And that's uh, really what was beginning to happen. So um, even though the second century was a century of great testing, it was a century when great, uh, very widespread distribution of the scriptures was taking place. Um, now, from the time of the Probably the earliest book was, the earliest letter anyway, was the the letter to the Thessalonian church. It was written probably only about 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. And then the book of the Revelation, the last book, was written about 50 years after that one was. So the whole period from some of the earliest epistles to the end of the Revelation is only about 50 years period of time. Um, And uh, then the, the Bible was collected into a... A, a body of books, 66, it ended up being. By 8150, uh, we have we have uh, accounts, uh, extra-biblical accounts that r- uh, recall the books of the Bible as accepted by the churches, and uh, the order was sometimes a little bit different than what we have it. Or first and second Thessalonians were put together, and things like that. Or you didn't have first, second, third John; you had the epistles of John in one book, and those kind of things. Uh, but uh, over a period of um, uh, time by about AD 150 the Bible was largely like you have at your lap today very much like you have it in, in fact it was being translated it was being translated even before uh, the apostles died it was being translated in their lifetimes and the earliest translation is the Syriac those that it's called the Peshitta um, because and we have pieces of it we have uh, we have some manuscripts of the Peshitta the early Syriac text which was written in that into the first and into the second century some who uh, who know it well said it's the most perfect uh, translation of any in, from it from the originals into any language uh the syriac so and it uh, it was you know into the second century not not much later than that you had it going into the old Atala, which is we call it latin but the latin you think of is the roman catholic latin the you know the real fancy latin this was not that this was the like koine greek is the common people greek and this old Itala latin was the latin that everyday latin that the that the uh, italians spoke so the old Itala was a very very early uh, translation we have uh we have uh, lots of uh, portions of scripture manuscripts from the old Itala uh that we that, that are in the record the uh, sahidic which was the upper part of egypt and across there, Libya and all that, was a, it was a language, uh, a dialect which was spoken there. The Bible was translated into that, the New Testament, into the Sahidic and Coptic. Of course, the Old Testament was around, the whole Old Testament was around long before that and translated in a number of languages uh, before, even before the time of Christ, of course. But the New Testament, was in, it was in uh, Sahidic and in Coptic, which was more the language of the lower part of Egypt, and other translations as well. Very early on, into the 2nd century, had lots of translations going out as well. Tertullian um, lived in the second half of the 2nd century and into the 3rd century, and he wrote this. He said, some of the original copies and what he called the very images of these were still in existence in the churches of Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and Ephesus, and Rome, As he was writing the letter, he was referring to these uh, very diligently uh, cared for copies, and he said even some of the original writings. He said you could travel to these churches, and he wrote in the 2nd century, he said you could travel to these churches, you could still see those uh, originals in, that were preserved in some of these churches that had gotten them last after they were passed around and kept. Back into the 4th century, it said that uh, Ephesus had uh, some of John's, writing, original uh, into the fourth century, uh, original manuscripts in the fourth century. And of course, by then, they were widely, widely disseminated, widely, widely copied, very carefully preserved, very carefully copied, and spread among the churches. So, as you'd expect, you know, Satan's device in the uh, second century, and the third, would be to trying to destroy the scriptures. And he did a, uh, he did a remarkable ger- uh, job of uh, trying that. But uh, by the grace of God, we have the word preserved until today all right uh the i understood that the master club was coming are they are they coming they must be uh uh having such a good time over there they forgot they have uh they forgot they have their their duty tonight so uh are they they're not there yet are they uh nate okay well we'll go ahead and have call a couple people to pray if you hear if the first person that prays hears sounds of a going in the mulberry trees then uh stop, uh, I mean, don't stop, just finish your prayer, and then the second person, uh, hold off, and we'll get them in, uh, otherwise we'll have both to pray and uh, do that, so uh, let me just uh, call a couple, to pray, have, uh, to pray. have Ryan, uh, if you'll start, and then Peter